Hello everyone and, and welcome to KPMG's latest Building Confidence podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by George Richards and Sahil Malotra from our ESG reporting and assurance team at KPMG here in the UK. I've invited them to join me today to talk about all things COP27, what's happened since COP26 and most importantly what we can expect to come in future. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks Phil, great, great to be here. Thank you Phil. Before we get into the nitty gritty, I think it'd be helpful to know a little bit more about what you both do. So I'd like to hand over to you to, to introduce yourselves. Perhaps George, we start with you. Can you tell us a bit about your background and, and what you do with KPMG? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so I lead our, what we call ESG assurance and reporting business. You know, so, so what does that mean? So on the assurance side, I sign public opinions uh, over uh, over ESG metrics and disclosures that, that businesses typically now have in the front half of their annual report. Um, and then on the advisory side, help companies with with the tidal wave of, of reporting and how to deal with that, that that's coming up. Uh, I guess just in terms of my broader background, so my interest in sustainability actually started when I lived in Vancouver in Canada. I spent many a, a, a fun week up at the top of a mountain doing measurements around um, glacial meltwater streams and the quality of that. So I've always had an interest in climate and, and sustainability. Um, and then I moved into um, financial audit and now into to non-financial audit. And I think, you know, wh where does my interest now stem from? I think, you know, if I think about what Paul Polman uh, has repeatedly said, that the new model of business success is now purpose-driven and it builds trust through transparency, sets big goals based on what the world needs, not just what it thinks it can do. And I think that's really resonated with me. And that's now why... Uh, my focus is on on non non financial reporting. Thanks, George and Sahil. Hi, everyone. Sahil Malhotra. I work in our ESG reporting team. Uh, so I have over a decade of professional experience uh, in ESG, uh, supporting companies across different stages of their ESG journey. <clears throat> my recent area of focus uh, has really been around helping clients navigate the complex landscape of ESG reporting and regulations that we are uh, seeing upon us uh, with a particular emphasis on uh, those requirements that are related to climate. Thank you both. Well, that's certainly whetted uh, my appetite for the discussion uh, ahead. Uh, COP27 has, has been uh, putting out headlines pretty consistently for the past few weeks. So where do we start with, with such a big topic? We're seeing an increasing focus on reporting frameworks and concern about how to report in a meaningful way. I think it might be good to summarise what we've seen happening over the last 12 months since COP26 and what we can expect to see in the coming year. George, let's start with you. Perhaps if you could touch on one or two key areas. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Phil, yeah, you're right. A lot has happened si since COP26 and COP27. It was the, the COP of, you know, let, let's implement the actions we've all been agreeing to. So in terms of bringing that back to what's been happening in the reporting world over the last 12 months, well, a, a lot is, is, the, is the headline. Um, so just one or two key areas. So the ISSB, so the International Sustainability Standards Board, was launched at COP26, the purpose being to create this global baseline for sustainability reporting. Um, and since then, we've seen um, not just the ISSB, but also the EU and the SEC launch consultations for, for their draft uh, their draft sustainability reporting standards. Um, so those consultations have closed. 
the ISSB is due to issue its final draft standards in the first half of 2023. Um, the EU has now approved the CSRD, which is the framework within which the sustainability reporting rules will sit. And those final draft standards uh, were issued earlier this month. Um, so they are they are much broader than the ISSB standards, which are focused on climate and principles of reporting. Um, and interestingly, the EU rules do include mandatory assurance, which I'm sure we'll get on to later. Um, and then finally, the SEC. So the SEC issued its consultation over the summer, actually reopened the consultation in October. But but their their proposals are specifically around climate reporting. So big a big shift in moving from developing standards to issuing draft standards, and, and we're moving towards those being final. Which, if you compare to the the pace at which accounting standards get developed, it, it's rapid. So there there has been significant development over the last 12 months. Thank you, George. Uh, Sahil? Yeah, so I think look, while some may argue the outcomes of COP27, um, the previous COP26, as George has, has alluded, has really built significant momentum towards uh, emissions reductions uh, and, and towards the climate agenda, which is likely to continue transpiring further into policy making around ESG in future. So George has alluded to to ISSB and EU standards. There have been several other initiatives across global jurisdictions as well. If I pick up on you know a couple of developments in the UK, uh, this year climate related financial disclosure requirements were extended uh, beyond sort of listed companies, but to cover a larger segment of, of private companies as well. Uh, we've seen the transition planning task force that was set up uh, and they they have recently developed disclosure recommendations uh, to how companies uh, you know can report around transition towards becoming cleaner businesses. Um, and furthermore, we are also seeing greater scrutiny around climate disclosure quality as well. So, for example, the FRC uh, recently published a thematic review where they bring out sort of key gaps in disclosures uh, as well as recommendations for improvements. We've heard a lot about climate through through COP27, but what about ESG more broadly, not 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 just climate alone? But what are your views there? Are, are we seeing and hearing uh, from clients specifically around ESG reporting uh, readiness? What, what what are we hearing from from those clients? Yeah, so a couple of things around readiness. Um, firstly, I would say one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing from clients is deciphering uh, the disclosure requirements across the multiple standards and frameworks that are out there and really identifying the common data points that can help address these requirements. Uh, I was recently supporting a client uh, to identify disclosure gaps against a variety of ESG related regulations and frameworks. Uh, the client had been historically reporting to a number of voluntary frameworks, various industry specific standards, and also wanted to assess their alignment with upcoming requirements. Now, an interesting finding that came out from this exercise was that there was a huge overlap of information required to satisfy the different disclosure requirements, as a result of which the client is now trying to pinpoint uh, the baseline data requirements and streamline their reporting process accordingly. Uh, the second point I would say is around the quality of data. So given ESG data is, is currently being housed across different teams and departments, there at times could be inconsistency on how it is collected, measured, aggregated and reported. 
uh, a lack of assurance around uh, data also you know results in quality issues um, as companies prepare for future requirements, uh, there's sort of that need to work on clarifying definitions, methodologies, assumptions, and as well as, well as uh, you know, having more robust processes and controls around their data. I, I think I'll just jump in there, Sil. I, th I think those are good points. I think for me, there's an under there's an underlying root cause of this, which fundamentally is if you take financial information, we've got double entry bookkeeping. You know, we've had that for hundreds of years. There's a there's a system in place to uh, set out how you should record transactions. And, and if your trial balance doesn't balance at the end of the year, you can you can it's a bit like a puzzle you can look into that and try and find out where the mistake is the problem with esg reporting and, and data as you've said and why the quality of data is so important is that if it's wrong at the point where you record the transaction it's very difficult to go back with hindsight and figure out where the mistake is because there isn't double entry bookkeeping with esg reporting and data so i think because of that you know it, it, all of this is a lot more challenging for clients um, and it's new and it's new topics and that that presents, a, you know, a, a huge task for people to get their arms around quality of data, you know, going through all the reporting requirements, etc. So, you know, the, the thing that resonates with me is that, you know, this isn't easy and, and our clients need a lot of help. You know that uh, I'm certainly hearing that when when I'm speaking to uh, uh, to, to the clients that I'm I'm dealing with, they, they're dealing with the, exactly those challenges. And I guess that that really leads to, to the point around assurance as well. And, and, and you mentioned, George, I think that that um, some of the standards which are being developed are are uh, leaning towards the, the, the need for, for, for assurance. Um, so, so maybe I'd like to uh, just cover some of that now. Do you see us moving to a point where, where the regulations will, will mandate uh, uh, some form of assurance around these disclosures? Yeah, so maybe I'll answer that in a couple of ways, just in terms of what the regs require and then and then reflect on what we're seeing from our clients, you know, despite in many cases it's not being mandatory yet. So if I talk about, I mentioned the, so there's a lot of acronym, acronyms here, but the, so the CSRD is the EU framework. So the EU framework and the standards that have been launched this month require what we call limited assurance initially. So yes, you know, uh, uh, over a number of different data points, assurance is required. So if you're a UK business with large EU subsidiaries, you know, you will need to obtain assurance over what you're reporting. Um, the SEC uh, also requires limited assurance initially. So as I said earlier, the SEC is focused on climate reporting. So they, they've asked for their mandating in the proposed regulations um, limited assurance over what we call scope one and scope two emissions. So those are the typical uh, emissions that people are reporting at the moment. Um, and then finally, the ISSB. So the ISSB doesn't have the mandate to um, uh, to force assurance to be mandatory. But but if you look at the wording in the proposed standards, it talks about information needing to be verifiable. So I think the the intention is that. Um, it needs to be assurable, but but they're not mandating uh, assurance at the moment. So that those are what the regs require. If I then flip it around into what what do we hear from our clients? Well, we um, we've run recently a couple of uh, ESG reporting and assurance events, one back in October and one in May, and we polled, uh, and over two hundred attendees responded to the poll to find out you know, which aspect of ESG reporting they felt posed a bigger challenge. Um, and in October, 
13% of those listed assurance as their number one challenge. And actually that statistic is up 62% from when we asked the, the poll to the same audience back in May. So we're seeing that you know, c concern around, right, well, I need to get assurance, even if it's not mandatory, so that that's definitely moving moving up the list. And, you know, not non-mandatory assurance is being driven by, um, for example, I was talking to a client and the, the chairman of the Remco, because ESG metrics are now linked to director's compensation, there's a need, you know, there's a fit, there's a, a need to get that assured, just given it links to remuneration. We've got financing agreements, which include ESG targets and metrics. So that's driving assurance. We've got investors wanting assurance. So despite those regs, not all of them mandating assurance, we are seeing in the market an increased demand for assurance and actually clients prioritising getting ready for that assurance. And one of the questions which which uh, I hear a lot, and and maybe we could clarify this for for our listeners, what is the difference between limited and reasonable assurance? Uh, are you able to to, to summarise that uh, for, for our listeners? Absolutely. So, I guess the best way to explain the difference is compare it to um, financial audit, which which is a form of assurance. So, re reasonable assurance is akin to the level of assurance you get in a in an audit opinion. Now. Obviously, the underlying subject matter is different and we have auditing standards uh, that are followed for financial audit and we have a standard we follow for, for assurance. But fundamentally, that that bar is similar to the, the level that you'd need to get to for, for a financial audit, whereas limited assurance is more focused on um, it, it's focused on analytical reviews, inquiries, understanding of the information. So, so the level of evidence required is different. And then the conclusion is also different. So a limited assurance opinion is a, a negative form of, of assurance. Nothing has come to our attention that suggests that the information's not been materially prepared in accordance with the, the, the client's methodology, whereas reasonable assurance is a, is a positive assurance opinion. And then probably the third point is the that there's a fundamental difference in the level of evidence, as I said, that you need to obtain. So just for, for reasonable assurance to, to get to that bar, you need to, for example, assess and start to rely on controls, because if you're just focusing on a substantive approach, your sample size is going to be enormous. Um, so that those are the those are the key differences. Thanks, George. And, and, and maybe a couple of follow on questions that spring to mind, I guess, firstly, would I be right in assuming that, that there is a, a, a natural move towards reasonable assurance and that is probably where, where we're going to end up? And, and I guess, secondly, assuming that is the case, um, uh, what, what do clients need to do uh, in order to be to be ready to, to, to move to that level of assurance? What would be your advice to them? Yeah, so first part of the question, yes, we are moving to, to reasonable assurance. And indeed, I, I talked about some of the regulations a moment ago, and those are mandating limited assurance. Well, the SEC, for example, two years after you need limited assurance moves up to reasonable. So, so that is the direction of travel. Uh, we did a survey of the largest 100 companies in the UK, and around about 7% of them are now getting some form of reasonable assurance, uh, and, th and that is increasing rapidly. I think at the moment we're we're probably in a we're in a transitionary period, so we're seeing some examples of hybrid opinions. So some metrics are limited, some are reasonable. Typically, the ones that move more quickly to reasonable assurance are things like greenhouse gas emissions. 
uh, partly because those have been reported for a number of years and therefore clients processes and controls are more mature um, so that, that that's the direction of travel we up towards reasonable assurance in terms of you know what clients need to focus on I, I think you know for me it's a journey and if I get a phone call from a client saying hey George I, I want a reasonable assurance opinion in in a couple of months time we've never had assurance before you know that that that's not that's not the right approach the right approach is to you know start with a small number of metrics as limited assurance and then move through to, to reasonable assurance and I think in that journey there are probably two or three things to focus on. One is you need to step back and assess what are my current processes and controls? Have I mapped those out? Are they documented properly? And importantly, where are the gaps? Because to achieve reasonable assurance, the assurance provider will need to test and rely on those. So step one, you know, map out those processes. And we're doing projects with clients at the moment where they want to achieve reasonable assurance and we're helping them uh, map out those processes and then and then someone else will provide the assurance in due course. I think secondly, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Sahil, it comes back to data and data quality. You, you need to assess, well, where does my data come from? And, and frankly, if it all comes from a spreadsheet, then, it, you know, your journey to reasonable assurance is going to take longer. If it comes from a system, then that's great because there'll be controls and robustness around around that system. And then the third, the third thing that we see a lot of clients doing is doing a dry run or what we call assurance readiness. So, you know, before you leap from either no assurance to limited assurance or limited to reasonable, it's important that um, you, you've got everything set up for being successful in that assurance process. So assessing how ready you are for reasonable assurance is an important part of of that journey for, from limited to reasonable. Thanks, George. And and you mentioned just then, you know, you, when you get the phone call from the client, uh, you know, want, wanting to get some assurance. Who typically is that client? What are we actually seeing in practice in terms of who's holding the pen and, and is responsible for managing ESG reporting within the business? Uh, and what's the governance, governance around that? So yeah, that, that's that, that's really interesting. And I have seen it shift. You know, we talked at the beginning about what's changed over the last 12 months. You know, one of the one of the things that I have seen is a shift in responsibility of ESG reporting and, and data from, um, you know, what I would traditionally call the, the small sort of focused ESG team into the finance team. So I've got one client where um, it was the ESG team owning the data, running the assurance process. Um, last year and now and now it's the finance team so you know that the, there is a shift in that ownership i think the there are pros and cons of that right so the the pros are that if you think about the mindset of a finance team they're used to dealing with the level of rigor that's required for financial reporting and fundamentally my view is you need to apply that same level of rigor to non-financial reporting so, so if you're grounding the responsibility of the reporting with finance, that that's setting you up for success. Uh, the flip side is that without that subject matter knowledge, it's difficult and hard for a finance team to step back and assess whether the numbers look right, sort of the, the sniff test. And it goes back to what I said earlier about without that double entry bookkeeping system, you need to understand the subject matter to be able to challenge whether 
you know, whether the, the metrics look right. So I think, yes, ownership of the reporting with the finance team, but it's important to also involve the broader business because typically this information sits outside of the remit of finance across the business. So it might come from HR, it might come from operational components. So those are the people that really understand uh, the, the source of the information. So I think, yes, being owned by finance, but there needs to be a joined up approach across the business in terms of overall responsibility for the for the ESG information. And George, if I just chip in there, I think on your point around um, the ownership within the finance team, I think I completely agree. I think what we're seeing is that more and more companies are realizing that this isn't just a compliance exercise and that there are sort of greater strategic implications and connectivity between ESG and financial reporting as well. So, for example, you know, companies, if they're disclosing uh, net zero or setting net zero targets in, in the front half, that actually requires fundamental changes to business strategy, to where capital is allocated across the business towards different investment decisions, et cetera. And that is what's really bringing in the finance team and, and driving the agenda and discussion in the boardroom as well. Thanks. So it sounds like the, the role of the CFO is, is certainly changing and, and, and broadening here. How does the chief sustainability officer role fit into, into all of this? Do you want to go, Sahil? I've, I've got, got some views on that as well, but perhaps you kick off on that one. Yeah. So the role of the CFO, as I see it, is, is actually broadening now. It is it is becoming more of a, a chief performance officer where, where it's it's looking at you know the traditional financial reporting, but also sort of looking at the non-financial reporting aspects as well. Uh, and as George pointed out, you know, this works really well because the finance teams have historically have had that skill set, the rigor and the responsibility uh, around reporting processes uh, uh, as well as disclosures. Uh, however, we see, you know, the CSO as an emerging role that is sort of working more around the on driving the transformation part within the business. So this is the role that helps understand, interpret and comprehend the, the, the language around ESG, helps in that strategy development, governs uh, and, and oversees the actions as, as well as, you know, to, to, to oversee um, the implementation of that strategy and really works alongside that financial reporting team. So these these people uh, or the, these roles are are of professionals who may not be typically financial experts, but do have that record for driving transformation across the business. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that, Sahil. And just just reflecting on that, you know, for me, the role of the chief sustainability officer is um, it's that sort of it, it's threading ESG through everything that the board does through the strategy, um, through remuneration etc so, so that's a really important role at a board level actually i was i was out at a client yesterday talking to the cso and he was saying look esg reporting and no assurance is really important because this plays an important role in me accessing finance and capital so yeah. it, you know i agree with you to hill it's the cso now you know has an involvement uh, involvement with treasury with hr on sort of pe the people agenda with the CFO, so really, it's that 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 role that glues ESG across all the different functions of the board. So it's a hugely important role, and we've seen that develop rapidly over over the last twelve months. Yeah, that, that's that's encouraging to hear because I I think there's a lot of companies where so far ESG has been treated as a little bit of a bolt on to to the, the company yeah. business plan, and there's a danger there that actually 
ESG just becomes a, an overhead rather than a driver of the business. How, how do you think companies should integrate their, their climate steps and actions back into the business plan and, and, and how do they track progress against, against their strategic objectives? Yeah, re- re- really important question. And I think, again, Sahil, I'll, I'll, I'll get some views from you in a minute. But for me, I, I think what we've been talking about over the last couple of minutes is just getting the right governance structure in place. And I think that's really, really important. So, you know, climate has to be a board level agenda item. It's not, this isn't a compliance exercise. This isn't tick box. It's fundamentally changing what businesses are focusing on. And it's not, it's not just about risk. It's all, it's also about opportunity. You know, climate is, it's not a bad thing. You know, there are significant opportunities for business. So number one, you need the right governance structure. It needs to be on the board level agenda. Um, I think then, then number two, it's about moving from a lot of people have set targets. So, you know, a couple of years ago, everyone was setting a net zero target. Well, now, you know, the time has has come that people need to deliver on those targets. So, you know, I think it's about thinking about what commitments have I made? What targets have I set? And how am I then integrating that really back into the business strategy and the business plan? And then, Finally, it's about being careful about what you say externally. There is huge scrutiny and challenge now over what people are committing to. And if you're making commitments without having properly thought through that and how you're going to achieve that, then clearly you're at risk of greenwashing. And you only need to open the papers now to, to see some of the stories that uh, that are emerging. So it, it is it is an area that really needs that board level focus. So, Hill, I don't know if you've, you know, from your... You know, I, I know you're focusing on climate, but, but in terms of what you're seeing more broadly, in terms of how companies are integrating that into what they're doing, do, do you have any any other yeah. thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, I agree. I think we, we are seeing sort of a, a lot of companies now setting targets and net zero roadmaps and, and disclosing that as part of, you know, front half disclosures. But where where I'm sort of seeing the gap currently is the transition of of those uh, targets and roadmaps into uh, how they're actually operationalized. So, you know, for example, you know, you're setting targets around your supply chain, around how you want to shift uh, to a lower lower carbon supplier base, for example. That's a great strategy to have, but how is that actually being operationalized? How are you tracking that information? Uh, You know, have you made a shift from, you know, what towards that commitment that you've set? that level of of detail is is currently still in in the works and i think that that's another area that companies would really need to focus on as they commit to these these wider uh, more ambitious goals and targets thanks these these are big investments we're talking about is it just large list of companies who need to be focusing on esg reporting I, I strongly believe uh, that smaller companies have a, a huge role to play in this as well. So, um, you know, if we look at transition plans uh, of larger companies, these transition plans will really look at their value chain impacts. So companies are now, you know, focused on measuring their scope three emissions, which really means that they will require more data from smaller companies that may be supplier to their businesses. So if, if we take an example, uh, a real estate companies today are looking at embodied carbon within their developments and their and their buildings now in order to reduce their footprint they would look at low carbon raw materials 
and low carbon suppliers. This offers opportunities for such suppliers to now position themselves towards this green transition through their ESG reporting. So, so there's there's this strategic sort of benefit of, of doing this. Uh, and, and furthermore, I think we're also seeing this more from the regulatory aspect uh, around uh, reporting for smaller companies. So the EU, for example, uh, as part of, of their announcement, are already looking at ESG reporting standards for SMEs as well in future. Yeah, I think I, I guess just just to add to that, when I'm talking to smaller companies, you know, if if I'm honest, you know, ESG is on the agenda, but for a for a smaller company, is it the top item on the agenda? You know, not necessarily. You know, there are clearly broader things going on in the economy, which mean that you know it's right for smaller companies in the short term to focus on things that, frankly, are going to you know keep the business alive, but. I think what we are seeing in our conversations is that it's on the agenda and and I think smaller companies are seeing that to be successful and to continue to grow in the future they they ESG has to be integrated into what they're doing otherwise they will not be successful um but I think for them it's a it's a longer term it's a longer term piece that integrates into their growth story but in the short term clearly you know, at the moment with cost pressures, issues in supply chains, you know, there are other things there they're also dealing with. Thanks. And and how do companies move the focus uh, beyond beyond climate to, to the broader areas of, of, of ESG? Mm, maybe I'll go first, Sahil, and, and, and then you can add anything. But I think, you know, companies are moving on for, from the focus around climate and a lot of people say, oh, uh, you know, companies are moving, you know, into the S of of ESG. But, you know, what, you know, how are companies actually doing that? I think for me, you know, the, the key thing is around what we call materiality assessments. So I think when you think about what are you going to report and how are you going to tell your ESG story, a lot of, a lot of companies we talk to say, where do we start? What do we do? And actually what you need to do is step back and establish what's material for my business and what's material for my stakeholders uh, and and that will drive you know the 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 th- thread through the the ESG story that you're telling um and we'll move it more broadly outside of climate so and actually if we think about some of the standards we talked about earlier the EU standard requires you to think about you know what's material financially and then also what's material from an impact um, perspective. So you're looking at, at inside out and outside in views of of what is material. I think that's the starting point to think about moving beyond climate. And you know, for a lot of companies now, board diversity, IDSE, those are really big, important topics to their stakeholders. So so that's that's helping them refocus beyond climate to those topics. But but doing a materiality assessment is often the best way of actually starting out on how do we think more broadly beyond climate i know i mean i know sahil you've worked with some clients doing materiality assessments but anything more broadly you you would add um absolutely agree i think uh, it's it's listening to your stakeholders uh, understanding where your impacts are and and how does that position with your business strategy um i think materiality as an exercise is is um 
it's it's sort of evolving in, in the sense of definitions as well. Um, so if you, whether you're just looking at financial materiality or whether you're looking at impact materiality or having that double materiality lens as well. So it's it's figuring all of that out. Uh, and, and that's one of the challenges that we're going to see some of our clients go through as, as these standards evolve. Thank you very much. Well, we're almost out of time now, but before I let you go, maybe I could ask each of you really just to share a few thoughts in terms of what would be your advice for businesses and how they can prepare for the future in this area. I think maybe I'll kick off, Phil. So I think for me, it's it's about taking a longer term view and not just not just focusing on short term financial performance and. Um, you know, I, I read out Paul Pullman's quote earlier, but for me, you know, to be success, to be a successful business, you need to focus on purpose. And, and if you if you don't do that and you don't build that into your long term strategy, you know, my view is that you, you won't be successful as a business. And we're seeing that right now, uh, that that shift towards purpose. So, you know, for me, my advice is to establish well, what is your purpose and, and how are you going to portray that externally? How's that? threading through everything that the board's doing and what the strategy is and then that sets you up for for being successful in the future thanks and sahil so for me i think uh, looking at how reporting has evolved over the over the past few years there's much more greater focus on connectivity between what is disclosed in the front and the back half of, of reports. Uh, this is evident from uh, the standards that are being proposed, as well as what we're seeing from regulators in, in their assessments uh, uh, you know, coming out. I think companies need to really deep dive uh, and consider the financial impacts of their ESG ambitions, actions, and targets, uh, and, and really link that uh, to, to their narrative and to their story um, in order to you know, A, report what's material, what's really asked for by the stakeholders and avoid any form of greenwashing. And I love, you know, Sahil, you, I don't think we've used the word connectivity yet throughout this discussion, but I love that phrase. And for me, you know, to connecting financial and non-financial information and performance is really, really important. So I think that's a, that, that's a great way of summing up that, that question as well. Well, thank you very much. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for in today's podcast. So, George, Sahil, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and, and thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. I, I guess my key takeaways from what we've covered today are, firstly, we've we've seen a, a, a real move in terms of developing that the standards, much needed standards are, are around uh, ESG and, and, and climate reporting, whether that's through ISB, EU or, or, or the SEC. Uh, and I guess secondly, in connection with that, that there is there is a real desire and need to get assurance around around compliance with those standards. And uh, it, it does very much sound like we're moving into into a, a world of, of of reasonable assurance, which will really raise the bar in terms of companies needing to 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 have the data to hand, the technology to process that, and and, and the ability to, to to disclose it effectively. I guess finally, uh, and really importantly, ESG is not is not just a bolt onto the business. It does need to be integrated in, into the business strategy. It needs to be a, a board level uh, agenda item, uh, and, and that's what what companies need to do to, to ensure they're successful in this area. With many more great guests in future episodes who are passionate about good governance, ESG, and technology, so please do subscribe to our podcast so that we can let you know when new episodes are being published. Thank you and goodbye for now. We can endlessly debate about our future, but now is the time to stop talking and start doing. ESG, environmental, social and governance 
embeds positive impact into our actions, not just around climate change, but the whole fabric of society. At KPMG, we have the knowledge, ability, and experience to guide business leaders to drive real change. ESG is now. Are you with us? Search KPMG ESG to find out more.